0: You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to join our voices together as one and together with all of creation and all of heaven, declaring that you are holy, holy, holy. That you are good in all of your ways. So would you cause us to worship you rightly this morning, that we would praise your name. That we would praise you for all that you are as we Read your word as we sing, as we study, as we pray, in just a few minutes as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that all of this would be a declaration of your goodness and your holiness. Would you teach us through your word this morning by the power of your spirit that we might be encouraged and built up and instructed as your people for our good and for your great glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, River City. I pray your hearts are full of gratitude to God for his mercy, which is new and inexhaustible this morning. And if you need that reminder today, you did get an extra hour of sleep, so maybe that's a reminder of God's new and inexhaustible mercy. Um, I don't know. I did. Um, my name is Jake. It's my joy to serve as one of the pastors here at River City. Uh, we are continuing our study in the book of Exodus, so you can turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. If you need a Bible... Some folks are coming around and can get you one so you can follow along. Um, We'll actually start at the end of chapter 20, but if you find uh, chapter 21, uh, you'll be close to where we are. One of the things I'm, I'm hoping that we see each week as we're reading and studying Exodus is that we're able to see that Exodus is not merely a history book. Remember, in Exodus, God is revealing who he is. He's revealing what it means to belong to him, to be his people. And God is revealing his purposes, namely the glory of his name through the salvation and redemption of his people. Exodus is a book about redemption. God is saving his people from Egypt, and this saving of his people doesn't just hint at it, it actually screams gospel. And something that's often missed, I think, for us in our understanding of redemption and our understanding of our, even our communication of the gospel is that redemption isn't only freedom from something. It is also freedom for something else. We are saved from slavery to sin, just as Israel is saved from Egypt. But also we are saved to something. Something. In this case, we are saved from slavery to sin and we are saved to submission to God. As Paul says in in Colossians, we have been transferred. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so what's kind of countercultural about Exodus and ultimately about how God works redemption is that. God doesn't set Israel free from Egypt so that they can now just kind of live their lives however they want in this newfound freedom. It's not why God does this. He sets them free to belong to Him. Likewise, the gospel is the good news that God in Jesus Christ sets us free from sin, not so that in our now newfound freedom we can just live however we'd like, but so that now we are empowered to live lives in submission to God because now we belong to Him. It's a transfer of ownership from slaves to sin to now slaves to righteousness. Is how Paul talks about it. We are now free to surrender and love and worship God. And because God is both the Creator and the Redeemer, He gets to set the standards. He gets to set the expectations. And... In his mercy, he provides the power to live according to his commands. That's what I, I hope we this kind of sets the framework for us, not just for our study in Exodus, but all through the Old Testament as we try to understand the old covenant and, and what this all means, and then how we can see through Christ how this is now applies to us, how this applies to us. As we read Exodus. We are hearing God declare over and over again, I am your God. And this morning, our big idea God is revealing himself as a God of justice. I am your God who restores justice. My argument is that all of God's commands speak to God as being just and the restoration of justice for those who have experienced injustice. When you and I think about the word justice, what comes to mind? That's rhetorical. You don't have to answer, but. Think about it for a second. What comes to mind when you think about the word justice? Over the past couple of weeks, I've spent some of my downtime watching parts of two really fascinating and heartbreaking court cases that have kind of gained national attention, one out of Wisconsin and one out of Florida. Two different men who caused senseless destruction and death, both accused and charged in court for multiple crimes. And both of the accused were found guilty on all accounts by juries of their peers. Both will likely spend the rest of their natural lives in prison. Now, we might argue when we see cases like this in the face of such remarkable evil and tragedy that justice is done when those who do wrong are caught, tried, and punished appropriately and accordingly under the law. And there's a sense in which we can feel a a sense of peace or a sense of okayness if you will that justice is done right in cases like this but but justice isn't merely related to punishment of wrongdoing we can't just only pigeonhole it into that category because there are many facets of what makes something just or right or good that don't have anything to do with punishment justice has wrapped in it up in it the ideas of both fairness and goodness We see something that is wrong in the world and we say that isn't fair, right? Someone maybe in a position of authority uses or abuses that authority for their own personal gain and they get away with it. And while it might not be illegal, clearly we can go, well, that's not just, that's not fair, right? We see it when people exploit the vulnerable, be it oppression of the poor the trafficking of human beings, or even today, even as we prayed when we started, there are Christians around the world who are being persecuted just because they love Jesus. And we can look at that and say with some level of confidence, that's not good. As Americans, we have something called the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection under the law. So when laws don't do that, when they don't actually offer the protection that they say they are supposed to we can say hey that isn't fair and we rightly cry out for justice i mean we don't want to be on the wrong side of justice we don't want to be accused of being unloving or unfair we want our lives to be virtuous we want to stand up for the right things right to be seen as defenders of the right causes calling out the worst of injustices So what is justice and how do we define it? I think part, at least part of what we see happening in Exodus here is God defining what is just and God restoring justice to those who've been living in injustice. Those who've been treated unfairly, those who have forgotten what is good and right and just. So if the God who created us and the God who redeems us who defines who we are as his people, he also gets to define what is good and what is loving and what is just. God is the one who gets to define the terms. And here in Exodus, God gives commands to help his people understand the right order of the world based on who he is. So the commands of God, as we study them, are the parameters. Now for Israel, not for salvation, and for us, not for salvation, but what goodness and justice look like for those who have already been saved. As Pastor Devin said last week, these commands aren't given to Israel to save them. They've already been rescued. They've already been saved. They've already been brought out of Egypt, and now they're being consecrated. That word meaning set apart. This is now what's good for you who belong to God. This is now the definition of goodness and justice because these commands reflect God's character and are thus reflected in the lives of God's people. So I want to build on what we started in last week in Exodus 20 so that we can read God's law through new covenant eyes, through Jesus. Jesus, when he was asked in Matthew 22, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Teacher, what's the one thing? That we must do. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 37. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, known as the Shema. Jesus says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says... All the commands of God can be condensed down, if you will, into these two foundational commands. Love God and love your neighbor. All the commands of God, as we talked about last week, are rooted in God's holiness, and all true justice flows from a love for God and a love for neighbor. So if we say we care about justice, then it starts with love for God and love for neighbor. I think it's a safe assumption that we all want to live in a just society, right? And more than that, we want our lives to be just, don't we? So the question is, what does it mean? What does it look like? What does it mean to live a just life or a good life? And here's my answer to that from our text. A just life flows from love for God and love for For neighbor, what does it mean to live a just life? A just life flows from love for God and love for neighbor. So, because we're trying to cover a lot of material today, all the way through the end of chapter twenty-four, we're going to read two. I know that's a lot. Buckle up. We're going to read two sections uh, from either side, and then we'll kind of work our way through the text a little. We're going to start in Exodus chapter twenty, starting in verse twenty-two. We're going to read a few verses there. Let's start there. Uh, Exodus twenty, starting in verse twenty-two through verse twenty-six. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold, an altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. You make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. let's skip down to Exodus chapter 24, verse 7. A couple of pages. Verse 7, then he, this is Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they, the people, said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient." This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. What does it mean to live a just life? A just life flows from love for God and love for neighbor. And those are essentially my, my two points today. A just life flows from one, love for God, and two, love for neighbor. And just like we don't get to make our own definitions for what is good or just, we also don't get to make our own definitions of what is loving. God, who is good and just and loving, gets to set the terms. Point 1 outlines what it means to love God and point 2 outlines what it means to love our neighbor. Now, these are not exhaustive points and they are wildly disproportionate. Here's what I mean by that. In my organizing of our time this morning, point 1 is short, point 2 is not short. Cuz point 2 is also full of subpoints. Now, this is mostly just for all of you note takers. Good luck. Okay? So what does it mean to live a just life? Here's the first point. A just life flows from a love for God. Immediately, the question is, okay, so what does it actually mean then to love God? And like I said, this is not exhaustive, but there's two things that show up in this text that I'd like to highlight. The first is this. Loving God is worshiping God. And not just worshiping Him any way we see fit, but worship Him, worshiping Him as He prescribes. As Pastor Devin reminded us last week, God has now reestablished his covenant relationship with his people. He began it in Abraham. He continued it through Isaac and Jacob and is now reestablishing it through Moses for all the people. God called them from slavery. And as we've read it six or seven times now from Exodus 1 here through Exodus 22, God says, I will bring my people out of Egypt. I will bring them into the wilderness. I will bring them to the foot of this mountain. Why? So that they might serve me. That's worship language. That they might worship me. And so the section we read gives some outlines, some instructions for what that worship should look like. The Lord tells Moses to tell the people, chapter 22, the proper worship of God should be distinct from the false and pagan idol worship of the surrounding cultures. And he gives them instructions about not making idols out of silver and gold, not letting their nakedness be seen near or on the altar. Why? Because their worship was meant to be distinct from the worship of the surrounding cultures that were living in the land of Canaan. Similarly, if you read ahead to chapter 23, maybe you read this this week, 18 and 19 give instructions for sacrifice. Specifically, you get this strange command not to boil a young goat in its own mother's milk. Now, I don't think any of you brought goats to boil this morning to worship. If you did, leave them at the door, right? Why are these here? Many pagan religions included all these ritualistic exercises and ritualistic sex and all kinds of strange practices in order to appease their gods, right? If you do the right things to, the, to the, appease the right gods, you'll get the response you want. So if you want a certain uh, level of crop production, you'll do these rituals for this god. And if you want fertility for your livestock or for your family, then you'll do these things to appease your gods, and God, who is God alone, says, your worship of me must not look or sound or smell like any of the worship of these other gods. Why? Because God, who is God alone, has set his people apart, so their worship of him should also be set apart. Look at chapter 23, verse 13. Pay attention, the Lord is speaking, to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. To love God is to worship God rightly. And here's how this relates to justice. If Psalm 111 tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, then I'm going to say that the worship of God is the beginning of justice. Right worship empowers justice. Wrong worship enables injustice. A just life is a life that is wholly immersed in the proper worship of God. That's at least part of what it means to love him, is to worship him. Here's what else it means we see in this text. Obedience. Jesus himself says it in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Seems pretty straightforward, right? Thanks, Jesus, for a gimme. We read it in chapter 23 of verse 13, which we just said. Pay attention to all that I have said to you. This is obedience language. Every parent in the room has looked their kids in the eye at some point and said, are you paying attention to what I'm telling you right now? Right? You've all done that. Or your parent was telling you, like, are you looking at me? Not if you understand, right? That's what's kind of happening here. And the intention of Israel was to obey. Last week, chapter 19, the people answered together, verse 8. And they said, what? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Happens early in our text today. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It happens all the way at the end of our text today. Chapter 24, verse 7. Moses took the book of the covenant, read it before the people, and here's what they say. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. What's happening here? In part, I think the people are responding to the gracious salvation of God. They're saying, yes, Lord. We will live according to your word. We will surrender our will to yours. We will follow where you lead us. We will listen when you speak to us. We'll obey you. You have rescued us. Now, I think first, that call to obedience is just because God is God. He doesn't have to do anything to solicit, to deserve obedience because He's God. He doesn't have to prove Himself. But, What's interesting is he actually does prove himself. He 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 shows himself merciful and shows himself loving and shows himself just. He proves to him that to, to the people that he is worthy of obedience in the way he saves them, in the way he provides for them in the midst of his grumbling in their and their grumbling. And as we see in a few minutes, he offers out of his abundant grace a relationship with them, and then out of his abundant supply provides all that is needed for them to be in relationship with him, even though they bring nothing to the table. God is proving that he's worthy to be obeyed, even though he doesn't have to. He can just say, I'm God, and the answer is okay. Right? To love God is to worship him wholeheartedly. To love God is to obey him, we see here in Exodus. Not to earn anything from him, But because we are already belonging to Him, because we already know His love for us. John says it in 1 John chapter 4 we love God because He first loved us. Any ability for us to express love to God is only because He has so fully and completely loved us first. To love God means that He is our highest authority and our greatest good. So the question to ask is, is God our highest authority and do we see Him as our greatest good? I think only if God is our highest authority, is our greatest good, then we will have all that we need to pursue justice for the oppressed without becoming oppressors ourselves. We're going to get into that. Which leads us to our second and much longer point this morning. Point If point one, that a life a just life flows from love for God, then point two from our text is that a just life flows from love for neighbor. And God, like he gets to define what it means to love him, he also gets to define what it means to love our neighbor. Under love for neighbor, I actually have four sub points. Do I have four? Doesn't matter. I have some subpoints. A couple things that the law provides and then... What the law pursues, and then there are subpoints under the third subpoint. So, good luck. We read last week the Ten Commandments: things like don't murder, don't commit adultery—that's don't engage in sexual relations with someone other than your spouse with whom you are covenantly connected, uh, married. <clears throat> don't take something that belongs to someone else. Right? We we see these and we're like, great, got those. But what happens when someone is murdered? What happens when someone commits adultery? What happens when something is stolen? So from chapter 21, verse 1, through chapter 23, verse 9, we are given, essentially, case law. This is some things God's law provides for Israel. Case law. The law of God takes into account that because of the fall of Adam, that happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, Because sin is in the world, that there will be no perfect justice on earth until Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom in full. God's commands are not given to a utopian society where everyone will just get along. Rather, God's commands are a realistic response to sinners. I want us to understand that when we read these. These commands, these laws from God, are designed to govern the lives of real people in a real place, in a real time, and they're intended to promote public justice. That's how Israel is supposed to receive God's commands. Here's what I mean by that, how they uh, uh, the, God's commands are a realistic response to sinners. First, these laws just take into account that we live in a sinful and broken world. Two, these laws take sin for granted in it What I mean by that is they assume that sin is present in the human heart, that the heart is the problem. Three, these laws accommodate sin in some ways, and I'll explain what I mean by that. And four, these laws are designed to minimize the damage that is done by sin. Let me give you an example of case law and how God realistically deals with sinners. In Matthew chapter 19, a Pharisee asks Jesus about divorce. And how Moses, in Deuteronomy 24, gives permission to Israel, in the Mosaic law, for divorce. Jesus responds in verse 8. This is Jesus' response, Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, to a Pharisee asking Jesus about, uh, Moses said we can divorce our wives. What do you say, Jesus? Jesus says this, verse 8, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. The Mosaic Law is making an accommodation for the sin that would lead to divorce. That there are some reasons why this might be. And it makes an accommodation for and puts a safety net up to mitigate the damage done by sin. So, abuse, which we would all argue is a terrible, horrible sin, is protected. The person, the, the, the victim is then protected under the law to mitigate the effects of sin. At the very same time, where does Jesus make his appeal? He does not make it to the Mosaic law. He appeals to creation. He goes back to Genesis chapter 2, to the created order, and he says, actually, God has made male and female in his image And he's united them together in one flesh. What is due your spouse, according to Genesis 2, is covenant faithfulness. That's what actually is due them. That's justice and oneness. The law for divorce in Deuteronomy 24 was given to accommodate your hardness of heart. Where this Pharisee, I think, gets into trouble, and where we tend to get into trouble, is we treat God's commands like a ceiling. This is the standard for God's righteousness, or it must be. Therefore, if I check the right combination of boxes, then I am free and clear of what God has said in His law. Divorce might be allowable, and we would argue, biblically, it is, in certain circumstances. But God, because He's holy and created male and female and marriage as good things, He can still hate it, which scripture says he does. Now, we need to be careful not to treat the law like the standard for righteousness. The standard for righteousness is not the law. As Devin preached last week, the standard for righteousness and holiness is God. The law is not designed to show the limits of God's righteousness. Instead, the law for us and for Israel at this time serves as a net that keeps people from falling into greater destruction. It's not a ceiling. It's a net. Chapters 21 and 22, we read things like when men quarrel and when an ox gores a man and if a man steals a sheep. There's this assumption that sin is present and then God is kind to give help and instruction as to how we can deal with sin in a righteous and God-honoring way. It serves as case law. The second thing the law does is it gives us precedent. It guides us so that we might resolve disputes and problems amongst ourselves. It helps us apply God's word situationally. Knowing what God has to say on a given matter actually enables us to use wisdom. And there's a whole lot more that can be said about wisdom, or if I can be so bold, the lack thereof in our current culture. The opposite of wisdom is foolishness. And here's here's what I mean by that. Foolishness says, if God's word doesn't speak about it specifically, I'm free to do it. Essentially saying, how can I get clear of the reach of God's commands and the reach of God's holiness? But wisdom says, how can I rightly understand and apply every single relevant part of God's word to this issue? That God might not speak to this specific thing, but he does speak to it generally. And oh yeah, that applies to me too. Right? For example, here's an example we see in the text. Chapter 22, a man steals and kills an ox. And he has to repay the owner of the ox, five new oxen. But if he steals a sheep, he only has to repay four sheep. You might read a text like this or a passage like this if you've been reading ahead and you're like, great, have no idea how that applies to me. Next chapter. Here's what this is doing. It's giving us a framework for justice. An ox is a working animal, so think of it in terms of a tractor or a combine, right? More work, more expense, more value, and a sheep is simple livestock. It's the farm truck. You like it, but you can replace it. Far easier than the combine, right? Precedent says, okay, how do we apply what is true in one situation to something that might be similar but a little bit different? Wisdom then guides how restitution is measured, not in terms of oxen, but with other things by comparison. God speaks clearly to this. This situation is different, but similar enough that maybe there's application from God's word in this as well. Further, most of the commands of God are directed to his people specifically. They're meant to happen in family, if you will. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is instructing the church... Believers in Corinth on how to deal with someone, one of their members, who is living in outward, unrepentant sin. What does Paul do? Paul quotes Deuteronomy to help them understand how do we deal with someone who's just unrepentant and obvious about their sin in the midst of the body. Under the old covenant, the the penalty would have been execution, but we're not under the old covenant. So how do we understand what God instructed there and what precedent looks like under the new covenant? Well, under the old covenant, it was death by stoning. Take him outside the city, you throw rocks at him until he dies. Story over, right? Under the new covenant, it's not execution, but excommunication. God in his new covenant is making room now for grace to be applied. The, the, The sin is still the sin, But even discipline and excommunication are now designed to bring about repentance. So these are two things the law provides. Case law, so we can see where the law applies to certain situations. And precedent, so we can see how it's applied using wisdom. Those are the first two things. Third, the law is always in pursuit of justice. And there are four places that we see in this text... So here's those subpoints. Four places where the law is pursuing justice. First, the vulnerable. Chapter 21 of Exodus is a very challenging passage, and it's going to take me a little more time than the other three. I'd like to talk briefly about that word slave that we read in most of our English translations of the Bible. Many commentaries, I won't say they agree with me because that sounds very arrogant. I agree with them that this English word slave is unhelpful for the American reader in particular. Here's why. The word slave here is translated from the Hebrew word abed. And I don't mean to get all nerdy on you, but that word, that Hebrew word broadly translates as servant or bond servant. When we read the word slave as 21st century Americans we cannot help but read it through the lens of what we know as the transatlantic slave trade that brought kidnapped men and women from many parts of Western Africa and Central Africa into the Caribbean and into the United States. But, but servitude, a bond servant, at the time of Exodus was a very different scenario than what we know as slavery in the United States in our history. In this case, in Exodus' case, someone who was poor and vulnerable could offer themselves to another to be their servant. Maybe they were poor and vulnerable because they were a farmer and their crops got decimated or or they're a a widow and their, their spouse had died and they had no way to provide for themselves or they were injured somehow or they were an orphan. There's many cases where the poor and the vulnerable could now have some kind of safety by saying, I will work for you. and the master would be responsible to give them food and housing and pay in exchange for their labor. And so Exodus 21 actually lays out a very different explanation of what we maybe come to understand as slavery. Here's some of the things that make bond servanthood, if I can say it that way, distinct from what we tend to know. First, this kind of service as Exodus 21 is laying out is time-limited. Six years it describes not permanent. Even if the master, let's say it's a, a male who's the bond servant and the master uh, get, gets him a wife like here here's a here's a bride for you and they have children, then the wife and child are also bond servants to the master, but only through the duration of time that's required. It is not permanent. The Mosaic law, always treats people as people and never treats people as property. Just want us to understand that. We'll get the property law in a second. And people are never considered property. In fact, a servant in this scenario could become an heir to the inheritance of their master. A servant in this scenario, described as a slave in Exodus 21, could marry the daughter of his master and become one of the family, be considered a son okay? Two, Exodus 21, verse 16, expressly forbids man-stealing. I like that better than kidnapping. Man-stealing. should bring back that phrase. And the penalty for man-stealing is, you guessed it, death. We're going to take you outside the city and throw rocks at you till you're dead. Beyond that, not even the person who did the kidnapping did the man-stealing. Anyone found in possession of someone who had been stolen was also subject to the same penalty there's no excuse. Third, Exodus 21 verses 23 through 27. This is where we get that phrase that we've heard many times, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You've heard that one. And here's how you've probably understood it. You punch me in the face. I punch you in the face. At least that's how my kids apply it, right? He hit me first. Sorry to burst your bubble, but that's not actually what it means the servant is injured in the eye. His work now is limited. And what happens is, according to Exodus, according to the Mosaic law, that slave actually goes free. You don't get to go to the guy who wounded his eye and take his eye out. It's not what it's saying. It's not one-for-one retribution. It's based on justice. The slave goes free, and the one who has wounded the servant has now cost the master labor. So justice means freedom for the slave and restitution for the one whose servant was injured. In all these instances, the law, Moses, is making an appeal to the imago Dei. The image of God in all humanity. So what is due all humanity, because they are made in God's image is justice. So if I can be so bold to add one more little bit of commentary on our own history, the transatlantic slave trade was in direct disobedience to the Bible's clear teaching on the Imago Dei and was a woeful and wicked twisting of God's word when it was used otherwise. This kind of servitude in Exodus probably more closely resembles military service today. Anyone here serve in the military? Right? couple hands, right? What, do you, what happens? You enlist. They feed you. They clothe you. They house you. They tell you what to do. They pay you and they train you. And you work for them for the duration of your enlistment contract. And when your time is up, you can stay if you enjoy the work or you can go do something else by and large. Is that a fair representation generally of enlistment? Right? That more closely resembles what we're talking about when we read Exodus 21. I just want to help you in that as you read a challenging passage like this. Servitude, as outlined in Exodus 21, provided a safety net where there was no Medicare, no Social Security, and it was structured in such a way to actually protect rather than exploit the vulnerable. Because God is consistent within himself. He is one who defends the helpless and protects the weak and the vulnerable. The second way the law pursues justice relates to property. This one's real short. It can be boiled down to this simple phrase, which I'm sure you know. You break it, you buy it. The property law, as given here in Exodus 22 and others, are built around the guidelines for restoration, right? and, and, And there's a difference if that is accidental or intentional, What's been lost still has to be restored, but it, it's different. Let me give you a modern example. Anyone have dogs in the room? You own, a, you own a dog. couple of hands. Not a lot of dog owners here. Cats? People own cats? That's okay. We don't have to be pet owners. That's fine. I have a thing against the whole, like, fur baby movement anyway, so... <laughs> I like how I get a claps and amens for that. Um, if your dog bites someone but has never done anything like that before you're still liable, right? Your homeowner's insurance will probably get involved. But you're likely, if that's never happened before, and they were on a leash, and they were behind the fence, and some kid is poking it with a stick and gets bit, you're probably still liable. But you're probably not going to be brought up on criminal charges. Probably. If, however, you have a dog that's bitten like six kids, and it runs around the neighborhood with no fence, and no leash, and no collar, and they catch it, and it's your dog you might actually be liable for something more than just like, whoops, negligence, right? That's kind of what's happening here. The idea here is that personal responsibility is taken in order to make the other person whole because of what they've lost. That's all of this entails. What is right in bringing restitution and wholeness to those who have lost? And it balances out between things that were intentional and unintentional. Third, justice as it relates to sex. I'm going to keep this section rated PG, but parents, you might have to define some terms when you get home. Sorry about that. Uh, Chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. Let me read it to you. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Now, a couple things here. Maybe you've heard this passage used as an argument. I've had a conversation with someone about this passage, about how the Bible is backwards and harmful to women. And I have to push back on that just a little and explain. First, this passage presumes consent on the part of both parties. There is a word in the Hebrew for forcible rape. That word is not here present in this text. And the punishment for rape, if we want to go there from Deuteronomy chapter 2 is, you guessed it, take him outside the city, throw rocks at him till he's dead. There's a theme here on the way to deal with lawbreakers in the Old Testament. So what's being described here is something different. And while it's clear the intent here is that the man is the initiator, that word used is seduce in the English, it means to entice. It doesn't necessarily mean manipulate, but it means to entice it does imply that the woman here is a willing participant in this activity. Okay? That's at least implied. Two, I don't think this creates an obligation that every act of premarital sex must result in marriage in every instance. That's not what's happening here. What this is doing is providing a safety net for a woman who in an ancient Near Eastern culture like this might have her prospects for a good marriage now limited by the fact that she's been with someone else. In fact, the man himself, depending on the context and the timing, might also be looked down upon highly. This is not merely one-sided. The man in this case, in Exodus 22, has violated the purity of... Of this woman. He has shown disregard for her worth as one made in the image of God. So the responsibility now is on him to make it right. First, by marrying her and thus fulfilling all the obligations to care for and love and provide for this person, this woman, his wife. And if the girl's father completely refuses, I mean, who knows, maybe this guy's a total dirtbag, he has to pay the bride price, which in cultures where arranged marriages are common, an exchange would take place from the husband-to-be to the family of the bride-to-be, to provide for that family, to make build relationship and connection. So what that actually is intended to do is to raise the value of women in the culture, and to raise the value of the purity of the sexual union between a husband and a wife. Further, I think it also highlights that any sex outside of the covenant of marriage is a justice violation. It's a justice violation, and here's what I mean by that. It is the taking of something that doesn't belong to you. To quote Pastor Bobby Jameson, a pastor who I've I've listened to a little here in Exodus, he says this, and I thought it was very helpful. The only warrant of taking... Sexual intimacy is the prior giving of the lifelong commitment of a marriage vow. Everything else is stealing. That's what's happening in this passage. And so if something is stolen, then restitution needs to be made. And we all know this. We look at a court of law, right? And someone's child dies. And punishments are doled out by by a court for money damages, or for time served. And we all recognize that this is not a one-for-one fulfillment, right? Money or jail time does not bring back a lost loved one. It doesn't restore a stolen virtue. But the responsibility on the offender needs to be marked somehow. And that's what's happening here. That's the third way the law pursues justice. The fourth is this, justice in broader society. Chapter 23, verse 4 says something really interesting. Listen to this. Uh, You can read it along too. Verse 4, 23. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. You see your your enemies, uh, someone who doesn't like you and you don't like them, their donkey is wandering away into the wilderness. Your job is to bring it back to them. He continues. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. This implies that the one who hates you is standing there next to his donkey, which is like falling over because it's carrying too much weight. And the Mosaic law says if you see that donkey laying there with his master who hates you, your obligation is to go over and help him. The command to rescue your enemy's ox or donkey is not optional here. This isn't a if you get around to it. And it's also not based on, it would be very merciful and compassionate of you to do this. For the people of God, it would be unjust to not serve your enemy in this way. It's a different way of looking at it, I think. It is anti-justice to not love your enemy, to not pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because God, who is just, loves us who were his enemies. You want to live in a just society? You want to live a just life in a just society? There cannot be justice out there until there is justice between you and your enemy, between you and your brothers and sisters, between you and God. That, I think, is the crux of the Mosaic Law in restoring justice. I've given you the parameters for it. And if you want this kind of world where justice happens, here's how it happens. And it goes all the way back To God. So where does that leave us? Because I don't know about you, I see a problem now. See, one thing we need to understand when it comes to the law of God is that we're not allowed to disregard or pick and choose the parts that we like. We must understand that all of God's law is designed as a really good diagnostic tool. It's a great x-ray machine that takes a snapshot of our lives and says... Man, you guys are broken. That's what the law does. But the x-ray machine has no ability to fix the problem. It cannot set any bones. It cannot repair any heart damage. The law does not have the power or the mechanism to fix what is broken. It cannot change the heart. It reveals sin, but it cannot redeem from sin. And because all of us as humans are sinners by nature and choice, we all fall short of God's holiness and glory. I mean, we have good intentions, right? Those are my intentions. Those are your intentions. Those are clearly Israel's intentions. They say it three or four times. We will obey. We will obey. We will obey. And in the coming chapters, we were like, really? Did you, did you forget what you just said, guys? That whole golden calf thing. How's that working out for you? We're going to get there. It's a fun one. I want to live justly. I want my life to have been marked that I've done something to alleviate the burdens of others, the oppressed and the vulnerable. I want to wisely apply God's word to my life circumstances. I want to worship God wholeheartedly. And yet, we recognize that despite our best intentions, we will fall short. Even if we think we are not that bad compared to those men sitting in a courtroom awaiting judgment for murder, we're still not there. The apostle James says it in James two, when we break one part of the law, we're guilty of all of it. None of us stands righteous. So something else must be done. And this is where here in Exodus, we've seen it in bits and pieces. We saw it in the Passover and we see it blindingly obvious here of not just the law, but we get lots of gospel here. If a just life flows from love of God and love of neighbor, what enables us to love God and love neighbor as we've been called to do? Because friends, it is impossible to truly love God and impossible to truly love our neighbor unless there is blood. Look at chapter 24, verse 3 through 8. Let me read this for you. Moses came, tell all the people, told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice. Here's their intention. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men, the people of Israel, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Verse six, and Moses took half of the blood, and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Verse 7, the people respond, the book of the covenant is read, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, we will be obedient. Verse 8, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is one of those Bible stories that does not show up in children's Bibles very often. Can you picture it? Moses takes half of the blood that has come out of these oxen that the young men of Israel have sacrificed on behalf of the tribes of Israel, and half of it he throws it against the altar. The other half he puts into big basins and then throws it on the people. Can you picture it? The clothes they would have worn that day would be stained forever by blood. Talk about a memorable day. the blood of a sacrificial offering would mark the people of God. and it wouldn't just mark them, it made them worthy. Look at what happens next verse 9. Moses, uh, excuse me, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone. Verse 15, they went up and the cloud covered the mountain and the Lord, glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and covered it six days. What happens here? The people are covered in blood and Moses and the 70 elders go up and they see God. Now, scriptures tell us that God can't be seen by any human. Man cannot see God and live. And yet here we have this little quandary that men are seeing God. And there's some mystery here that I'm totally okay with. God has revealed himself in such a way that Moses and the others were able to behold God in some way and not die. What's more, they sit down in the presence of God and have a meal. A meal would have been the final celebration, if you will, of a covenant that has been struck between two parties. What do we do when the contract is signed? We sit down and have a feast together. Where before, the people cowered in fear before God, Now, covered by the blood, they behold him in reverence and feast with him. God has now provided all that is needed for the covenant requirements to be met. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9 for me. Hebrews chapter 9. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can just listen. I think it's on the screen. Starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, temporarily, how much more will the blood of Christ... Who, through the eternal spirit offered himself, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus said it in his sermon on the mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. There's a purification that's happening here. Jump down to verse 18. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. I love that Hebrews says he sprinkled it, and Exodus says he threw it on them. I don't know if that's just helpful perspective or what, but verse 20. This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. This is for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Are you seeing what I am seeing? God has provided everything that is needed so that the requirements of the covenant can be met not by the blood of a goat or a bull, but by the blood of Jesus Christ himself so that his people might be forgiven, that they might have secured for them an eternal redemption. A little further, if you read in Hebrews chapter 10, it tells us that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. And I don't know if you're allowed to have favorite verses, but actually there's a, the next verse, the next slide. Let's just say 10, 14. That's my typo. So just don't write nine. That's wrong. 10. Hebrews 10, 14 says this, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. Like I said, I don't know if you're allowed to have favorite verses. If you can, this is mine. That he has perfected, has made pure for all time eternal redemption he has made perfect for all time those who are being sanctified i don't understand it but it is glorious that he sees us as perfect and pure covered in the blood of jesus and that as we live out this life he is working our sanctification and our purification that we would look more and more like jesus It is a forgiven and a blood-covered people who can not only now belong to God, but behold Him, who are made just and who are made righteous before Him. See, we know that we will falter and we will fail in our pursuit of justice. But God, who is just, has set down the parameters. This is what justice looks like. In His love and in His mercy, forgives us through the blood of Jesus so that we might be a people who can now through Him do justly and love mercy And walk humbly with God. A just life flows from love for God and love for neighbor. And it is only a blood-covered people who can do that. My prayer is that the Lord would continue to sanctify us as his people. Those whom he has purchased. Those who are already forgiven through Jesus. That we might display him and his justice as our justice-restoring God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You that You have once for all satisfied Your requirements through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That not only His blood, which secures our forgiveness, but His rising again, which secures our eternal life. that in his blood we are covered and that in his life we now have life. Would you give us eyes to see freshly the the beauty, the awfulness, and the wonder of Christ's purchasing of us as we have simple elements of bread and juice that they are reminders of and markers that point to the fullness of your redemption, giving of yourself to redeem and to cover your people, that we might be made new, and that we might now walk in this newness of life, empowered by your Spirit, covered by your blood. Encourage us as we come to the table, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.